0: Today's reading is from Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 7. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Lose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord. Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the reading of the word. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Sherry. Good morning, Redemption. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving and uh, just very thankful for John uh, being here from Immigrant Hope. And if you have any questions, be sure to visit the table, uh, the Immigrant Hope table, Uh, back there. Uh, If you're new here, we're glad you're here, and my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia, one of our nine uh, congregations, and um, we just finished a 15-week series in Exodus, and now we're going into our four weeks of Advent. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I know some of you enjoy listening to the podcasts of the other some of the other redemption uh, churches to see how they handle the same text that we're handling every Sunday. Because for the most part, every Sunday, every redemption church is looking at the same uh, text. We follow the same preaching calendar. However, a couple times a year, and this would be one of them, during Advent, the four weeks of Advent, we all do something different. Uh, We all decide what it is that our congregation uh, would Um, be blessed by, would benefit from, and so we put together our own Advent messages. And so we decided to kind of go back to the basics and kind of continue with the story that Exodus gives us uh, about looking back at the Creator uh, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but then also looking forward at who Jesus is and even the new Jerusalem um, when He comes again. Uh, which is part of the celebration of Advent at this time. We celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, but also look forward to him uh, coming again and ushering in the new Jerusalem. And so what we're going to do is um, not very uh, clever or creative, but we're going to do a, a, a series, four weeks, on the suffering servant out of Isaiah 52 and 53. This, this, these two chapters are foundational to understanding who Jesus is and the fact that he is uh, Messiah. And so, I'll give you an overview of the series first. This week, we're looking at uh, Isaiah 52, 1 through 12, where God essentially says, I've got this. And really, embedded in that is, don't worry, I've got this. And I've had this all along. I've had this plan all along, so don't worry about it. Uh, Next week, we'll look at uh, the rest of Isaiah 52. We'll preview it a little bit today. Uh, In the first three verses of Isaiah 53, where God says, not only do I have this, but you're not going to believe who. You're not going to believe who the Savior is going to be. It's the last person anybody would think. And then the third week is Isaiah 53, 4 through 9, and it's where God says, not only are you not going to believe who it is, but you're not going to believe how it's done. It's crazy. Nobody would ever come up with this except me, God. And then finally in week four, we look at the last three verses of Isaiah 53 where God says, and this was my will. It's not only my plan, but this is my will. And so we're going to have a a pretty... Uh, interesting discussion about what the will of God is because a lot of people have questions about that and we're actually going to use scripture to talk about it, which will be fascinating for some of us, I know. So, uh, like I said, we just finished Exodus where so much of Exodus clearly points us to Jesus and helps us to understand uh, the New Testament better. Um, and so, we decided these suffering servant passages from Isaiah would be a good way to go for Advent because it's another Old Testament passage that points us to the reality of Jesus, because Jesus is a big deal. In fact, he's the only deal. And, and what we want to get across today is that uh, our salvation has been planned by God all along. This wasn't something that he came up with um, after he had to figure it out, all this sin that human beings were, uh, were, were committing. In fact, he knew right from the very beginning exactly how he was going to do this. Um, we talked a lot during Exodus about Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narratives, how everything got started and it was paradise and it was wonderful uh, and it was without sin. But then in Genesis 3, how Adam and Eve broke their covenant with God, broke their relationship with God, disobeyed Him, rebelled against Him, and ate the fruit. And when God came to them, He first gave them a chance to come clean, but they hid from Him and then they blame shifted. And after He was done with that very short conversation, He said, All right. Because you've done this, here's what's going to happen. And he gives us three sets in the last part of Genesis 3. He gives us three sets of curses that now will be enacted on all of creation. Because of the brokenness of the sin that started with Adam and Eve and that has been imputed to all of us, there are these three sets of curses. And in the first, and by the way, these curses are not comprehensive. They're just representative of the total fallenness and corruption in the universe that sin has given us. In the first set of curses where he's talking to the serpent, he's talking to the adversary, he is talking to Satan himself, he's talking to the devil, Uh, at one point he says this in verse 15, and understand, this is like three minutes after the fall has occurred. So this is just three minutes into the corruption of sin, and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring is going to be Jesus eventually. Uh, this, she is actually in the line of Christ and so he's saying there's going to be this division in the world now and there's going to be a problem but there's going to be a rescuer who's coming. I've already got this plan. He said he shall bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise the Messiah's heel. Now when we read that We tend to just run past it and go, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but God's got it figured out. Well, let me tell you exactly what it means. These are, this is vernacular or colloquialisms that were common in ancient Hebrew. Uh, For Satan to bruise his heel, that's like saying, Satan, you're going to wound my savior. You're going to wound my Messiah. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. Yes, Jesus did die. But he was raised from the dead. In effect, all that happened was was that Jesus was wounded. He's still here. He's still alive and will live forever and ever and ever. And that's where our promise and hope for resurrection lies. So to bruise someone's heel means you're going to wound them, but you're not going to destroy them. To bruise someone's head, though, God says, He, my Savior, my Messiah, is going to bruise your head. To bruise somebody's head means to utterly destroy It's Romans uh, 16 along about in verse 19... Where 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 Paul says and the God of peace will soon crush Satan yes God will crush him under his feet that's a reference to this idea of crushing the head bruising the head of totally having victory over Satan uh, sin and death in fact this verse in Genesis three just three and a half chapters uh, I'm sorry two and a half chapters into the Bible is what is known in academic circles as the Proto Evangelion which is the first gospel message the first uh, message of good news uh, that God's people are going to have, that he's got this figured out. He has a plan. And so Isaiah 52 and 53 actually tell us more about this offspring that is referenced here in Isaiah, uh, in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so we're going to go back and look at what Sherry read and then also look a little bit further than what she read. So let's start with those first two verses, where God says to his people Awake, awake. There's some irony there, and I'll explain that. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Now, what's going on here is that God's people are being oppressed They're in exile, they're they're having troubles, they've disobeyed God, they're suffering the consequences, and they're in mourning as a result. Um, Back then, if you were in mourning, you would cover yourself with dust. It was a way of letting people know, know that you were dejected, that you were sorry, that you were grieving. And God is saying, listen, the victory is coming, I am here, you need to wake up because this celebration is at hand. Get up now, rise up, and shake the dust off you, because it is coming. Loose the bonds, I'm sorry, be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So this good news of peace is about what happens in life after exile and in the new Jerusalem. And we need to understand that this idea of the new Jerusalem in Isaiah has Two levels, really. There's the new Jerusalem that is going to be built after they come back from exile, from the Babylonian exile. That's true. This, this temporal, worldly Jerusalem that will eventually be re- rebuilt with the whole wall and Nehemiah and all of that. But there's also going to be a new Jerusalem that comes when Jesus comes again. That's the new Jerusalem that you and I are waiting on right now. We proclaim the death of Christ when we take communion until he comes again. That's the idea, and that's that new Jerusalem. So it plays out on on two different levels. That's the good news of peace is about what happens in life and after exile in the new Jerusalem because the uncircumcised and the unclean, which represent sin, And corruption and evil are no longer allowed to touch us. And that is good news for us. Life would be so much better without sin, right? And verse 2 in Isaiah 52 is about the freedom of leaving the corruption of evil and wickedness behind. Wouldn't we like that? We talk about, all the time we talk about how broken the world is. How things are so messed up. Wouldn't it be nice if we could leave all of that behind in some way? If, if it was redeemed and restored into what God's original purpose and plan was. And so he says to begin, God says to begin this section. He tells his people, he says, awake! Awake! Awake, and there's some irony here, because what God is doing is he's turning back the cry of his people back on them. If you look back at Isaiah 51, 9, the people of God are beseeching God and saying, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations long ago. That's a reference to Exodus. Exodus. The people of God here, several centuries later, who are mourning, who are in captivity, who are in slavery, who are in oppression, are saying, remember when you did this generations ago in the Exodus? We need you to wake up, God, and do this for us now. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab is another word for, for Egypt. Uh, was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces and who pierced the dragon? And so they're calling on God to to say, hey, wake up. And God is going, no, you wake up. I've been here all along. The problem is, is that you ran from me. You walked away from me, just like in the garden, how Adam and Eve hid from God. Just like in, in, in Egypt, when they walked away from God and quit knowing him, God kept saying, no, you need to know me. You need to know my character. You need to be brought back to me. I'm still here. You wake up. And that same call is for us today. Wake up. But how? How is this all going to come out for them? Well, first, there's a little bit more story. Verses 3 through 6. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away from, for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually, all the day long, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. I am here. I'm already here. And he says, sold for nothing and redeemed without money. What does that mean? It means that our salvation is not transactional. And that's hard for us, because we generally live lives of transactionalism. If I do this for you, you're gonna do this for me. That's the assumption. We have implied transactions. If I just clean up my life a little bit and act more worthy and do a good deed, then God is obligated to show his favor to me, to bless me. And God is saying, no, none of that transactionalism works for me whatsoever. Because you and I bring absolutely nothing to the table that God needs. The only thing that you and I bring to this is our sin. That's it. And God's not that interested in our sin. He doesn't want it. In fact, he wants to redeem it. He wants to take it away. He wants to atone for it. He wants to pay for it. That's the only thing he does. We bring our sin, and God does with our sin what we can't do with our sin. So it's not a transaction. This is nothing but grace. It's nothing but the love of God manifest through his Savior. It's nothing but the mercy of God being bestowed on us. It is grace. By the way, uh, grace This is, is usually defined this way. It's unmerited favor. So here's a question. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? The answer is nothing. That's the whole point. That's the beauty of this. That's the victory of this. That's the good news of this. That's the gospel. Here is, is what God is doing for us. All we do is receive the gift of God, His grace, mercy, love, and wisdom. First Peter, uh, chapter 1, Peter talks about this. Again, so much in Peter references back to Exodus and back to Isaiah. It's amazing how much they're connected. Peter writes this. Knowing... That you were ransomed for the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You and I have have inherited this long line all the way back to Adam and Eve of sin, of clouded judgment, clouded thinking, corrupt ways of doing life, and we keep thinking we're going to be able to fix things and and make it better, and we can't. We've been ransomed, though, by Jesus from these feudal ways that we've inherited and we will continue to pass down. And we've been ransomed. Here you go. This is, again, the end of that idea of transactionalism. We've been ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but we've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The transaction is very simple. God loved us, and so he saved us through his Son. That's it. So in Isaiah... Uh, this, uh, we, we see that Egypt is mentioned. We also see that the Assyrian conquest is mentioned. And then there's, of course, this nod to the Babylonian conquest, that they need to arise. They need to w- wake up. They, they need to understand that God's, God is still with them, even though they are in exile. And the result of all of this, we've heard this before in Exodus, the result of all of this is very simple. God wants his people to know him. We need to know God. We must know His name and His character. Because when you and I seek after to know God's name and His character, that gives us an ever-increasing and bigger view of who God is. And when we have a big view of God, we can't help but have a big view of grace. And that's what we need. That's the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can redeem us, is the grace of God as manifest and played out in Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse seven, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, some of you know that Paul in Romans quotes this and he says, uh, he's quoting this to say, look, it's really good news that Jesus came and died for us. And and he's saying, look how far back, 600 years before this goes back, and Isaiah was already talking about and prophesying uh, this. And and actually, this idea of this good news um, that comes by the beautiful feet uh, is a historical metaphor. Um, Some of you know this. Back, Back then, for centuries and centuries and centuries, when nations or cities would go to war, they They would go to war, and they would have this battle, or whatever it is, and there would always be people who were not engaged in the actual warfare, but who would watch. And then as the battle was about to end, or had ended, and there was a clear victor and a clear loser, or everybody decided just to shake hands and go to their corners for a while, the people who were watching, some of them were uh, designated to then run back to the capital city or to headquarters. They had to run back and bring news of what happened in the battle. And, and in the headquarters or in the capital city, there was always a, a watchtower where a watchman was watching for the runner, waiting for the runner to see what kind of news was coming. And you could always tell, historically we're told, you could always tell by the way the person was running, whether or not they won the battle or they lost the battle. If he, if he's running with energy and he's running with a spring in his step, um, then chances are they won the battle and they knew even before the news got there. But if they lost the battle, if he's running sort of dejectedly and frustrated and he's slowing down at taking a water break, they knew that they probably lost the fight. And so it's beautiful when the feet have a spring in their step. And that's the beautiful news of the gospel. Jesus's feet are beautiful because he brings good news. There's a great example of this uh, in 490 B.C., just maybe 100 or 120 years after all of this going on in Isaiah, the Greeks were fighting the Persians uh, at, a, at a Greek city uh, called Marathon. Okay. Have you ever heard of, a, of, of Marathon? Maybe you've heard that word before. Anyway, they're fighting the Persians at Marathon. And, and the Greeks won. The Greeks were not favored. Uh, the Las Vegas odds maker had, had, had them. They were going to lose to the Persians big. And the Greeks won. It was like a miracle that they won this fight with the Persians. Sent them packing, sent them home. And so a guy named Pheidippides uh, started running back to Athens to be able to give them the good news, only it was a bit of a hike, it was 26 miles from Marathon uh, back to Athens, and so he came running and he delivers the, the good news to Athens, and at, right after he delivers the good news, we've won, we've, we've beaten the Persians, Pheidippides um, keeled over and died from exhaustion from the run. And ever since then, hundreds of thousands of people have been training for this thing called a marathon, and they run hundreds of marathons every year. That's how the first marathon ended, was with the person dying. So that's why people want to run marathons, in case you were wondering. That's a true story, uh, by the way. Anyway, think about it. Have you ever had such good news that you needed to share with other people, and you couldn't help but run? You ran down the hallway at work. You ran into another room in your house. You got in your car and you drove and exceeded the speed limit to get somewhere. I understand that now what we do is we just text somebody and add 17 emojis to let everybody know how excited we are, okay? But have you ever had such good news that you, you, had, you had to get it to them as fast as you could and you were excited and so happy? That's the beautiful feat. God is saying, I've got this, and the good news is victory, And Jesus crushes Satan, sin, and death. Verses 8 through 10. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy because the good news is coming from the beautiful feet. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord from Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So God says, look, there's good news coming. You need to rejoice. You need to celebrate. You need to sing. For God is a God of victory. And the victory has come and is coming. And again, there are two levels in these verses. This predicts not only the return of the Jews from their exile in Babylon to Jerusalem, the temporal Jerusalem, but it also foreshadows the entry of those who are in Christ today in the new covenant into the new Jerusalem. Jesus was born in order to die, in order to be raised from the dead, and in order to come again. That has been God's plan all along. And I I know that sometimes maybe I might overcorrect a little bit on this, but one of my frustrations about Christmas, I love the birth of the baby Jesus. I love that, I get that, I understand that, and we should celebrate that. But the problem is is that so often we just kind of leave Jesus in, in the crib. We leave him in the manger that baby is the Lord God. He's the Messiah. And he was born for a very specific purpose. He was going to live and then die on a cross and be raised again so that he can come back again ushering in the new Jerusalem. Christmas starts that whole thing. We can't leave him in the manger. We need to remember why he came. This is so important that once on Christmas Eve, I didn't preach the birth of Christ. I said the reason he was born was so that he could go to the cross and be raised. I preached a good friday and an easter message on christmas eve it freaked everybody out but at least they got the point okay they got the point of why it's so important and there are four parts of the good news there's the excitement of the messenger there's the eager expectation of the recipients of the message there's the action that god takes to redeem his people this is all god acting and then there's the fact that the salvation goes to the ends of the earth it cannot be stopped anywhere I think the fact that the church is 2,100 years old is evidence that, that God is true, that the Messiah has saved because the church is being led by fallible people like me, yet it continues to perpetuate. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that? that that's such good news. The gospel cannot be stopped. So can't we sing? Can't we celebrate? Can't we enjoy Yes, receive your bounty of earthly presence, but let's be thankful for the eternal gift, that gift that won't fade after January 1st or even December 27th. And then verses 11 and 12. Depart and go out from here. Touch no unclean thing. Go out into the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight For the Lord will go before you and the Lord Israel will be your rear guard. You don't have to leave quickly. You don't have to even look behind your shoulder as you're trying to escape. I'm with you. You can do this calmly and with boldness and confidence. He's saying act in faith as if this were already true because it is going to happen. Just as God's people will eventually be sent away from the Babylonian exile and back into Jerusalem, their new city, and they'll go in confidence... Uh, We we as believers in Christ will also be able to march with confidence into the new covenant and into the new Jerusalem because we're going to leave behind all death, sin, wickedness, and sorrow. We are redeemed now even as we wait for the Redeemer. We are saved and delivered now, even as we wait for the Savior and the Deliverer to come and usher in that new Jerusalem. Maybe you've been around church and you've heard this uh, saying, this is what's known as the great already, but not yet. We are already saved. We know that we have our salvation in the bag, but it has not yet been completed. We still have to live through all of this. It's like... It's like um, video recording a game so that you can watch it later and then somebody reveals to you the end of the game before you get to watch the the video replay of it. You already know how it's going to end, but you want to watch the game anyway. That's what we're doing. We know how this is going to end, but we have to live through the game now. This game of corruption, this game of spiritual warfare, this very, very difficult time. This is the tension that you and I live in as people of God the already but not yet. This is Jesus saying in John 16, in this world you have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome this world. There's that tension, the already but not yet, and it's great news. And so the lights, the gifts, the hopes of this season, all of it points to Jesus and his promise of us reigning in eternity with him. And then we look at those last three verses of chapter 52 as kind of a preview For next week, the who. God now transitions into saying, and this is who it's going to be done through and you're not going to believe it. It's the last person you would ever expect. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Remember the beatings that Christ took before he went to the cross? Couldn't even recognize him. And his form... Was beyond that of the children of mankind, unrecognizable. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them will see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So, this salvation which God has planned all along is astonishing. The most beaten and repulsive person ever is the one who's going to save us. God's salvation is amazing because it's done in the least expected, most unworldly way. It's done in a way that you and I would never expect. Absolutely not. It's done by a suffering servant, an unattractive, unremarkable, seemingly weak, quote, king. And here's the irony. The irony is that the world loves underdogs, and the gospel is the greatest underdog story ever, yet people reject it because only the spirit can wake up a sleeping person. Only God can yell, wake up. Only the Spirit can bring a a dead heart back to life. I'm telling you, I cannot look at this passage and this understanding of how the Spirit needs to move in us uh, without thinking of, uh, of the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride. And by the way, I'm not the only pastor who thinks about this. Uh, Lots of pastors think about this. I've had many conversations uh, with them. How many of you remember the movie Princess Bride or even Careful? Okay, the rest of you... All right, once you're done uh, watching the nine seasons of The Office, then you need to watch... um And you need to watch The Princess Bride. So it reminds me of the best scene in Princess Bride, I think, um, when Wesley, the kind of the the hero of the story, they think he's dead. And so Montoya and Andre the Giant bring him to this guy named Miracle Max. I always think his name is Mad Max, but I think that's Mel Gibson in a whole different story. But uh, anyway, it's Miracle Max. So they bring him to Miracle Max because Miracle Max can resurrect the dead, apparently. And so they brought him, and and for money, Miracle Max is going to bring Wesley uh, back to life. And so Miracle Max examines him, and, and they say, see, he's dead. And Miracle Max says, ooh, look who thinks they're so smart. You need to understand something. He's not all the way dead. He is what? Mostly dead. He's mostly dead, which means he's a little bit alive. In other words, there's hope for him, and he can recover. And, and then he says, if he was all the way dead, there was only one other thing that we could do. And they said, well, what's that? And he said, well, go through his pockets and look for loose change. So they didn't go through his pockets and look for loose change because he's partly alive. And so then they got that, Max went and got that, I think it's called a wayfarer that you've, you, you you have it by a fireplace, right? Is that what it's called? The big wayfair thing? And it stuck it into Wesley's mouth and he blew it up and then then Wesley wakes up and he says, to blathe. No, he didn't say that. He said true love, okay? If you don't get that reference, you got to go watch the movie, okay? So he says true love and so everything's fine. Here you go. You and I are not a little bit alive. The Bible teaches that God has to move in our lives in order to open our eyes soften our heart, open our ears, to be able to wrap our minds around something that absolutely makes no sense and sounds crazy until the Holy Spirit redeems us and opens our eyes. And I know this was true of me. I was 27 years old when, I, when, when God saved me, 27 years old. And up until the very moment that God revealed himself to me, I was like, this is stupid, and mocked it. The first two years that I knew Jackie when we weren't dating, I was on my best behavior when we were dating, but when, when we weren't dating, I used to mock her faith and make fun of her and tell her how stupid it was, and then God started working in my life, and, and, and it's, like, it's like Tom says, he, 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 the Holy Spirit is, is this decoder. Suddenly, you pick up scripture, and you go, ah, oh, I get it now. Jesus is real. It makes sense. And and God has revealed himself. And and I had that experience, and it was beautiful. And God says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come, and and I'm going to sprinkle the blood. And that word sprinkle in verse 15 can also mean startle. It's really interesting. So again, the word is like a kind of a double entendre. It plays out on two uh, levels. Sprinkle looks back to the call to sprinkle the blood of atonement on God's people, which Jesus is going to do for the last time. And has done for the last time. It's when Peter writes, again, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, to those, I'm writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ Jesus, and for sprinkling with his blood. Again, Uh, Peter is looking back both to Exodus and to this passage in Isaiah. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. But that word sprinkle can also be translated as startle. It's a double entendre. And the word startle reminds us that this way of God's salvation makes no sense to us mortals. It's not how we would do it. We would do it a completely different way. We would be Bruce Almighty fumbling around with post-it notes, okay? And it startles us. And so we view it with incredulity. My my response to this as a non-believer was that this was just stupid. And then the Holy Spirit opens my eyes, and I'm startled at the reality of this. And he changed my heart. And the kings of this world, and the wise men, and the philosophers, and the influencers, all those people that we look up to, all these people that we think are somehow going to save us and fix everything, they also will be startled into silence at the presence of this ironic upside down wisdom of God it reminds me of 1 Corinthians what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for the word of the cross is folly its foolishness to those who are perishing that was me until i was 27 but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning the discernment of the discerning i will thwart so, God says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's a rhetorical question, and the answer is yes, most certainly. For since in the wisdom of God, the, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, Christ crucified, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks to seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews because there's no way that a Messiah could ever die, could ever be, be, be nailed to a tree, to a cross. So that's a stumbling block for the Jews. But it's nonsense to the Greeks because they only think that, that intelligence and wisdom is, is what's going to save and not, not a, a, a Messiah on a cross. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men for consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth right here but God chose what is foolish in the world right here to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong you ever seen me fight it's ugly God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's so important. If we're just a little bit alive and we come to Christ, eventually we're going to take that little bit of alive and we're going to be able to say, I was smart enough. I figured it out. And God knew to seek me because I really bring a lot to the table. Look at how smart I am. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at how powerful I am. I've got money and charm and a business and everything this world has to offer. But Paul is saying, no, this is all God's work so that the only thing that we can boast in is Christ himself. He does the work for us so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I've heard it said, and I've I've seen it written as well, Satan is the great ventriloquist. Satan, the adversary the serpent, is the great ventriloquist. Satan is able to throw his voice. He's able to deceive us with rhetorical schemes. And he gives us the illusion of reality all the while sucking us into the black hole of his wickedness. All the while we're thinking we're really smart, we've got this figured out, and we're just getting sucked into his black hole. But here's the thing we need to understand. For a ventriloquist gig to actually work The audience must be willing participants in the suspension of reality and truth. If you go to a ventriloquist show with any cynicism at all, you're not going to enjoy it because you're going to be looking for all the ways that it's not real. You have to go there. In order to enjoy it, you have to go there and suspend reality and truth. It's the only way it's going to work. In other words, you and I are culpable. In our separation from God, you and I have chosen to walk away from God. This is God's perpetual problem with his people. We keep walking away and he keeps coming and saying, awake, awake, rise up out of those ashes, rise up out of your futile ways and come to me daily. We need to hear that. We need a savior and we have a savior. And God has given us one. Jesus was born in order to live a sinless life so that when he died on the cross as the spotless lamb, the perfect once for all sacrifice, and then to rise from the grave as the new birth and the restoration of all things, we can place our hope and our confidence and our faith and our trust in him and we should be seeking after him every day. And that reality is completed and sealed when he comes again. That's what Advent points toward. We celebrate Christmas, but we celebrate it because it points toward this great completion, the completion of his mission and our final eternal joy with him. And that's why we take four, year, four weeks every year to talk about this. So Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for your plan. And we thank you that you did it through Jesus the one that startles us. And we thank you uh, that you did it on a cross in a way that we just don't seem to understand apart from your wisdom. And we thank you that this was your will for there is no other way which we can be saved. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who does all, uh, all that we uh, need, all that we want and way more than we can ever imagine and think. So we praise you for all of that. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.